9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am David Rothkopf. I'm your host. I'm coming to you from New York City. Joining us from our nation's capital, I think, we've got Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you doing, Corey? I am exceedingly well, especially because I'm in Los Angeles, the nation's most beautiful city. Ah, the nation's most beautiful city. Well, welcome to the nation's most beautiful city. Los Angeles is the nation's most beautiful city? You're just trying to throw that one past me, eh? You you actually well, think that? Maybe I should put it slightly differently. It's the most beautified city, right? Every building's painted stylish. Stuff's planted beautiful everywhere. The people are amazingly beautiful. That's true. They all they all get free plastic surgery in Los Angeles, I'm told. It's <laughs> you know, it's a under the municipal charter, it's like a human right. You know, I have this sort of file like, you know, Woody Allen is a shoebox full of his sock drawer, I think, is full of little slips of paper with his next movie. And I've always sort of, you know, I have these ideas for movies. And I always wanted to do a movie about L.A. and that weird culture in which the lead character would be a plastic surgeon for pets. <laughs> <laughs> You'd make a fortune. <laughs> yes, you would, right? People would bring in their Oh, my dog's. Ears need a ear lift. My dog needs liposuction. My dog is really, you know, her metabolism slowed down. Exactly right. Exactly. Well, maybe we'll all go into this together. In as you could tell from that, we also have in Ale- no, not in Alexandria, Virginia, in downtown Washington D.C. at her office at the Georgetown University Law Center. Rosa Brooks. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And at his Georgetown Redoubt, we have. Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing, Ed? I'm doing well. Thanks, David. And no doubt you're up all night long following German election results. Is that not true? I was keeping a half an eye on the paint drying uh, on the front of our house. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, also on the German election. How can, how can you make light of this? Germany is the most important country in Europe and one of the United States' most important allies. and has been led by a woman who has kept the world stable despite lots of things for much of the past 16 years, Angela Merkel. And for the first time in that period, we are now going to have a new leader of Germany. What do you read into all of this? Or how's the paint drying? Which you choose. Before Ed starts, can I just say, we should be thankful for boring German elections. There have been more interesting ones in the 20th century, and it didn't work out so well for us. I'm pro-boring German elections. Yeah, in fact, boring Germany is is a I'm good I'm actually pro-boring elections. I'd like one here. Excellent point, Rosa. Well, we started with a good point and got you off the hook there. Now, Ed, give us the second good point. Well, I'm, I'm pro-interesting elections in Luxembourg or, you know, <laughs> somewhere where it won't really matter. No, I mean... By Germany standards, this was actually we just lost all of our Luxembourgian listeners. You know? I know that's, that's Luxembourgeois. 
Let's yeah, see. Well, I was about to. I was about always to seemed perfectly fitting for me. <laughs> this this topic is generating such excitement. I can't get a word in edgeways. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's true. Well, everybody yeah. wants. I'm just trying to save our 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 listen our Luxembourgeois listener. But go on, Ed. Offend someone else. Well, Andorra. I mean, do you want to go down the list of people that like to have interesting elections? Uh, no, the, the the general election was relatively interesting by by their standards, in that you know the outcome was not foreordained, and we're still not quite sure what what the outcome is. Remember, the CDU that usually wins, the Christian Democratic Union, Democratic Union, uh, ha- had a slogan: "No experiments." In one of their elections, that's that's how safe and rightly so German politics is. And their slogan was "Elect us, and we will bore you." Yes, politics is not a branch of the entertainment industrial complex as it has become. Now I understand why Corey is in Los Angeles. Isn't that the headquarters of the Boring Company, Elon (laughs) Musk's company, Elon Musk's company, the Boring Company? (laughs) I don't know the answer to that. You know that you know the company though. He's got this company to dig like a hole under California. Yeah, yeah. So- a subterranean high-speed transit system, which California could very definitely use. But the, there's the earthquake problem. Yeah, I mean, this doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah, it seems like a terrible idea. Ed, we keep interrupting you. I really apologize. Uh, as a, as a polite person, I will just plow on. I will bore my way through. <laughs> The, the geology of no, I think it's it's a good result because the populists on the right, in particular, but also on the left, didn't bark. It was a dog that didn't bark, and that's an, a, a remarkable accomplishment, given you know what we thought might be going wrong in Germany a few years back after Merkel let in so many refugees. The fact that they've absorbed. Wait, wait a minute, what, you wanna you wanna clarify that? You don't mean it was bad for her to let in the refugees? You mean that it created political backlash, right? Yes. We thought that there was, well, there was. It's not that we thought there was. The AFD, the Alternative Deutschland, took off in mostly in response to her admitting more than a million refugees. So the fact that they've absorbed them for the most part and kept a lid on the, on the, the far-right populist backlash is a remarkable accomplishment. 80% of Germany voted for centrist parties, more than 80%, in fact, in the election on Sunday. And given everything that's happened, I'd say that's a, that's a cause for celebration, regardless of what coalition government results from this. And I'll just say one more thing. I hope, though, personally, that it's the so-called traffic light coalition of the Greens, the Reds, the Social Democrats, that is, and the, the Liberal Democratic Party. The green performance is the other sort of standout from Sunday. It's their best ever. And they have become an interesting party, particularly on foreign policy. Corey, Ed describes well the situation in much the same way that the venerable Financial Times did. No surprises there. But essentially, if you go to the front page of the Financial Times, it's big, bold type that there was an election in Germany. And no conclusion about who has actually won the election. And it gives several different alternatives in terms of the Social Democrats and the Greens and the alternative for Germany. Maybe the Christian Democrats can come back. 
and cobble together a coalition, even though they suffered their biggest loss in many years, et cetera. So it seems like we're in for weeks of haggling and infighting. In the United States, that would probably cause civil unrest. What's your expectation for Germany? After a German election, the expectation is it'll take a little time to do the negotiations for a coalition. And these will be particularly interesting negotiations because if it is an SPD, so Social Democrats, Free Democrats, and Greens, the difference between the Green Party and the Liberals, the Free Democrats, is really substantial. And I could see a super happy outcome where the Green Party gets the foreign ministry because, as Ed said, they have been the German political party most in alignment with American thinking about Russia, about China, about a Germany that is more than flaccid multilateralism that actually steps forward and takes responsibility for solving problems. The Free Democrats, I think most Germans would feel most comfortable with the Free Democrats having the finance ministry, given how deep conventional austerity thinking is in the German body politic writ large. But if you take those two ministries away, what actually does it leave for the, in terms of directing policy for the Social Democrats? So they will have to have a coalition agreement that essentially hashes out all the important policy decisions before the government forms. So I'd be surprised if we have a German government before the new year. And so you'll have a caretaker government until then. But to be honest, Angela Merkel has been largely a caretaker, right? Like what has made her so popular these 16 years is just how profoundly cautious she has been and skillful, right? So I don't mean it, it's a lack of talent. I mean, if you think about the 2000, Ed, correct me if I've got my dates wrong, the 2009 euro crisis, where we all thought Greece was going to get bounced out of the common currency. If I'd been asked to bet $20, I wouldn't have bet the German chancellor could move fast enough to stay ahead of markets doing the execution and slow enough to actually bring the German public along with something that was an innovation in European financial policy. So I think it's going to be slow as they come together. But I also think this is a big change for Germany in the sense that people under 30 voted overwhelmingly for free Democrats and Greens. So you actually see a generational change coming in German politics. Whether they will vote for the SPD, you know, the more conventional centrist parties, the SPD and the CDU, as they get older is an open question. But right now, there's a really interesting demographic change going on in Germany where uh, the people under 30 are less conventional than their elders, but not, as Ed said, not moving towards the AFD or Die Linke. Rosa, I'm pretty sure that what you want to pick up from out of what Corey just spoke about is the flaccid multilateralism. That could become like a, a sort of a new lapel pin 
Oh, forgive me for creating a vision even I don't want to have. Actually, especially I don't want to have. Yeah, I know. It was a striking, um, if unappealing, uh, vision. Striking, if unappealing was going to be the name of my autobiography, but go on. <laughs> I, I thought I thought I was going to be phallic unilateralism, David. <laughs> <laughs> oh, play that! Okay. This, this, this needs to be nipped in, in the bud. I was actually thinking about something different listening to Corey. I was thinking about the degree to which the shift among younger German voters towards the more progressive parties away from the more establishment parties has been in many ways mirrored certainly here in the United States where people under 30 you know, shifted pretty, pretty abrupt, not completely abruptly, but noticeably towards the Democratic Party and noticeably towards the left wing of the Democratic Party, you know, the Bernie Sanders wing. And it'll be interesting to see the extent to which we see that pattern mirrored. Mirrored. I mean, I think I think it's fair to say that younger people almost always are a little bit more progressive than older generations. But I think the shift we've seen just in the last, you know, five years or so has been more than we usually see. It's been fairly striking. Ed, Angela Merkel was kind of an unlikely character to be a hero of the past 20 years, born in East Germany, trained as a scientist never accused by anybody of having charisma. But on the other hand, Corey brought up one of her triumphs. You brought up another courageous decision of hers. She saw the European Union through a particularly rough patch and also saw the Atlantic Alliance through a particularly rough patch under uh, Donald Trump when she kind of stepped in as the interim leader of the free world, if you will. What do you think we're going to look back on the the Merkel years? Uh, and will we actually miss her? I think we'll definitely miss her. And I think, you know, if she'd been on the ballot on Sunday, she would probably have seen a fifth consecutive, consecutive election victory. It was really notable that all the leaders of the, the other parties were attempting to appear more Merkel than the other her approval ratings as she goes out. But this is going to be a long goodbye, by the way. So we should probably get used to, to saying goodbye and reading valedictory pieces about Merkel. But they were all attempting to, to be like her. As it was pointed out to me recently, there is a word in German derived from Merkel. I think it's Merklin, which means chronically indecisive. So when you look back on you know, her 16 years, and admire this extraordinary accomplishment, uh, as Corey mentioned, the skill of sort of, of cautiously keeping things together, that there's also, there's also been, there's a cost to that too. And that sort of comes with a raft of postponed, difficult decisions. And, you know, you can list those off. What, what is Germany's foreign policy? Is it the upholder of the Atlantic Alliance and the European Union, or is it the partner for France of strategic autonomy? Is Germany a leader on climate change? In which case, you know, why is it sort of prevaricating over how quickly to phase out coal? And by the way, the Social Democrats are the worst offenders on that question. And then, of course, getting rid of nuclear doesn't help meeting your net zero targets. There's the whole question of reforming the EU. So whilst Merkel did navigate it through this very tricky period of bailing out um, Italy, Greece, Portugal and others with harsh conditions. It did impose austerity and fuel populism elsewhere, even if it kept the lid on it at home. 
um, Europe needs to have a, a more permanent fiscal arrangement and a, a less sadomonetarist fiscal arrangement. And, and that means de-Germanizing. Um, so there are sort of there are legacies there of, of basically untackled subjects, which is partly why she survived so long. But they can't be put off indefinitely. But overall, I think she'll get what would what would her you know Netflix ratings be? I think they'd be pretty high. They'd be at least four stars. Can I pause in admiration of Ed's creation of the word sadomonetarism? You know, I knew that was going to happen. That was exquisite, Ed. Exquisite. It's been used before. I think it was coined by Dennis Healy, the late um, British um, politician who was Chancellor of the Exchequer in Britain in the 70s when the IMF administered sadomonetarist medicine to a very humiliated Britain via Dennis Healy. So that phrase came with, was coined with feeling. Yeah, and for those of you out there looking for a career in journalism, and if you pick up on terms like uh, flaccid multilateralism or sado uh, monetarism, you understand how you take a boring subject and you try to goose it up just a little bit with salaciousness. But that's probably not where you were going substantively, Corey, was it? <laughs> no, that's not where I was going substantively, David. So Ed has 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 sort of given his valedictory. What what would you say? Let, let me sort of tweak it a little bit. The average American listening to this podcast, many of our listeners are not American, but the American listeners have now listened to a longer discussion about Germany than they have listened to since the Second World War. I mean, we just don't talk about Germany that much in this country, except in passing. And as you pointed out at the very outset, you know, Maybe that's not such a bad thing, given the way the when we did talk about it at greater length, it was not a good thing. But this woman has been a remarkable leader, and the world would have been a different place without her in it. What should the average American pause to think about Angela Merkel's tenure? I guess the first thing would be uh, to be impressed at the political skills of somebody with her background both coming out of the East, a pastor's daughter, active in changes that occurred in East Germany, but ruthless enough to take over the CDU leadership when Helmut Kohl, another legendary German chancellor, got into trouble with corruption, bribery, or no, taking suitcases of money, I think, was the charge. So first, She is a politician of skill that too often gets overlooked because what she does is manage the pace of change. And Germans want a really slow pace of change because they're well satisfied with their lives. And with the end of the Cold War, you know, we often forget how big a burden it was on Germans to be a frontline state for two generations, nearly three generations. And so they could be forgiven for wanting the world to be boring and to keep what they have and try and hold forces of change at bay. It is a conservative society in that sense. Even if many of the 
values and policy positions that they want to conserve are actually quite liberal. So she managed the pace of change beautifully. She was a stabilizing force in the transatlantic relationship. You know, after Gerhard Schroeder, the frictions in the U.S.-German relationship were pretty deep over the Iraq war, over Schroeder immediately going onto the board of Gazprom and pushing forward the Nord Stream projects. And she also, you know, most people don't notice that Germany is a major military participating in operations 20 years now in Afghanistan, 25 years now in the Balkans. And the comfort with which Germany has moved into a regular country in terms of military operations, maybe not quite yet, but the move is really substantial. And she did that without scaring Germans and without scaring anybody else. And that, too, is significant movement. Rosa, the Germans seem sometimes to be moving very slowly. But when you look at all their policies, sometimes I think they're just waiting for us to catch up. Because on environmental policies, on social policies, on getting towards a balance between fiscal prudence and also having an extensive social safety net and on having a sense of their place in the world that is engaged but not typically heavy-handed, they seem to be a place where we've been struggling to get going for a long, long time. Do you foresee that changing at any time soon? I thought you were going to ask me to reflect on why that was. And I was going to say, of course, they, they got there, as, as Corey noted, after some enormous uh, catastrophic defeat, humiliation and, and, and shaming after the Second World War, shaming that was obviously entirely appropriate. But it took a cataclysm. You know, it took the cataclysmic collapse of Germany politically, economically and militarily to turn Germany slowly over the decades that came after that into a country that had all of those attributes that you just listed. I thought you were going to ask whether the U.S. uh, should take away from this something that we could emulate in our approach to world affairs, to which the answer would surely be yes. We absolutely should be emulating that approach to global affairs. But I have an uneasy feeling that for us, too, it would take some it would take a cataclysm to get us to that place. We seem unable to get to it all by ourselves, which is not a, a, a cheery realization. Do I think Germany will stay in that place? You know, it's a, it, it's really hard to know. It is so fascinating to watch the to watch the sort of struggles of the major European states to carve out their roles and decide whether they do have unique roles or want to have unique roles. I mean, obviously, Germany is not not unique in having a, a socially democratic approach to politics and a reasonable approach to foreign policy and so on. That's been true of most of the major European countries relative to the United States for a long time. I have no idea what is going to happen. I would like to think that Germany will pretty much stay where it is now and not not change their approach. But who knows? I am not an expert on this. So I'm going to defer to my colleagues. And particularly you, Ed, I consider you our, our expert on European affairs, sort of. Despite the fact that he's from nowhere near Europe. Well, but he is he is with Europe, but not of it, even if he's no longer with it. As we say. That, yeah, that's true. Maybe he's an individual Remainer. Are you a Remainer all by yourself, Ed? Are you just hanging on to Europe even 
Just like Jefferson, who claimed to be a religious sect of one. (laughs) I like that. I've always felt my geographic European identity very emotionally. But the Remain situation, yeah, I was strong Remain when the 2016 campaign happened. I just don't think it it's particularly realistic to keep banging on the, the Remain drum because it's not likely to be reversed. And even if it were, Europe's not likely to want Britain back. That's, you know, further credit to the Northern Europeans. I think led by the Germans, but, you know, I, but I have to say, you know, I've had a little bit of Northern Europe envy for a long time now. Maybe this is, you know, what, you know, liberal Americans have, but it does seem like the countries of Northern Europe have gotten sort of capitalism more correct than the rest of us. You know, they've got this ability, as I noted, to have sort of fiscal responsibility and strong social safety nets. Germany, you know, labor holds seats on boards. Iceland just became the uh, first European country to have a, a parliament, which was a majority woman parliament. They seem to be making progress in a way that we can only aspire to. Why are, why are you know, the United States and the UK so backwards? Corey will have different answer to me. I think something Rosa just said, though, is very important. I think Britain and the United States don't have disaster in their recent memory or even sort of distant memory by now of defeat, of revolution. You can't remember the European Soccer Cup from just a couple months ago? I I don't know idea what you're talking about, David. All right, go on, go on. And I think that's bred a sort of, I mean, this was obviously given a a steroid boost by the end of the Cold War. Yeah, an idea, a sense of triumphalism that I think is quite deeply connected um, to why we're a lot more experimental and uh, perhaps a lot more entertaining quotation marks in the way we do our politics. There don't seem to be any really dark abysses in our memory of where what happens when politics goes wrong. And so I think that that Anglophone or Anglospheric sort of triumphalism um, is, is part of why we do our politics less well. But I do think also, regardless of that, we have, a diff- we have different, more adversarial political cultures. Coalition building is something that's been quite deeply embedded across Northern Europe and the Scandic countries for, for a long, in addition to, you know, crime noir series. In fact, even longer than their reputation for crime, crime noir, there is just a habit of power sharing built into those cultures that you don't get in the English-speaking ones. Um, and we're, we're seeing, we've been seeing the upsides to a more consensus-based politics, in particular in the last five, 10 years. Corey, before you respond to that, I just feel compelled to say that in the course of doing a couple of the books that I've done, I ended up reading a lot about the history of Northern Europe and came to the conclusion that the Brits were to blame for all of our fascination and suggestion that it was Greek and Roman culture that gave us the democracy that we've got, because it really started in many respects in Northern Europe and tribes would get together once a year and negotiate at an event that was called, and this was before the word had a different name, a thing. Yes. Uh, it was a thing. And in fact, I, I think it may be Iceland. One of them still is called the the thing. And they would every year, they would agree on things. And then these would become the laws of the the collective group. And the next year, 
someone would sit upon a rock and speak the laws. And the idea of speaker of the house, the idea of the, the role of the speaker was comes from law speaker, the person who would sit and recite the laws that they agree, agreed to in the past. I would like to point out that they also had a robust tradition of intergenerational blood feud on the negative side. <laughs> well, so they're that- like America in that way, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, this is your chance to speak to the superiority of the United States, carried as you are forward by the fact that it seems like the St. Louis Cardinals will never lose again. Oh, isn't it beautiful? 16 consecutive wins, the longest winning streak for my ball club in 138 years. It's beautiful, beautiful. I didn't mean um, to bring you to tears before you were to speak. But. It's true. But of course, we have not yet clinched the second playoff berth in the National League. And even if we were to clinch it, we will either have to play the Los Angeles Dodgers or the San Francisco Giants, both of which are better baseball teams than mine this season. And so we would have to have a soaring single game elimination of a better team which will, of course, propel us if we should have it. It's another great year to be a Cardinals fan. But back to your point about the superiority of economies in Northern Europe. First of all, you're exactly right. The genesis of the go-go American economy is not English. It is Dutch. I commend to you a really wonderful book, The Isle of the Manhattos, about the origins of New York City and the esprit, what Walter Russell Mead calls financial esprit in his book, Special Providence, about American foreign policy. Even if we had a political culture that would produce the economies of Northern Europe, the price you would pay is to shave 2% of GDP in annual growth, and the U.S. isn't willing to do that. So here you have the debate about how fast do you want the economy to grow in order to pay for those things? And you have less of that, as Ed said, exactly rightly, in the more collaborative political cultures of Northern Europe. I'll take slower GDP growth. I won't. <laughs> well, that's that's a political debate for you. Ed, we only have a couple of minutes here. One of the other things that I think about uh, Angela Merkel is that she she somehow survived with this kind of very serious approach to problem solving that, again, triggered a fantasy that I have, that Corey won't have, but I have, of the Katie Porter presidency, the, you know, the Elizabeth Warren, you know, these kind of serious people who get down into the weeds of issues, who demonstrate their intelligence and their actions and so forth. Do you think that will elude us always? And She had the particular skill. You know, I'm not a German speaker. My wife's a fluent German speaker. And when we're, when we're ever in Germany, I, I sort of uh, pick up another completely out of context, extremely long compound noun that they've invented. But other than that, I have no German. So I can't really explain very persuasively how good Merkel is at communicating. But from what I understand, she never comes across as patronizing or supercilious or looking down on people, but she doesn't sacrifice her intelligence either. 
And, and that's quite a skill. And it's one we, we don't sort of fully appreciate as non-German speakers. We don't sort of have direct access to. And so, you know, having, having a leader like that's a rare thing. More often than not, you know, if you want somebody who doesn't look down on you, you get somebody who talks like an idiot, like Trump. And I'm sorry to say, quite often, George W. Bush. But if you want somebody who sounds intelligent, you know, like Obama or Warren, then uh, people feel they're being looked down upon. Whether that they are actually being looked down upon is another question. They feel they're being looked down upon. Whatever Merkel's knack was for not being stupid, but sounding like she was accessible and, and could be approached by ordinary people, that's a rare political quality. And so I very much hope we're going to have somebody like that soon. Rosa, you know, I know that on a recent episode, you really wanted to speak more about the Australian submarines. You know, I want to give you that opportunity now. But in the context of it seems like as all of this is happening, that the U.S. is actually and this administration is actually prioritizing in a way that others really haven't done this pivot to making Asia-Pacific power our priority. And yes, we did bring the British into the thing with the submarines. But, you know, there was a quad summit, albeit not super high profile, but it was the first such summit that followed swiftly upon the heels of the, the, the announced deal there. And clearly in that deal on the submarines, how the French felt did not seem to be the first priority of, of the administration. Do you think that the next leader of Germany is going to see a, a further diminution in the importance of the Atlantic alliance? Yes. Um, and to some extent, that's, that's probably inevitable. I mean, I, I, I do think, yes, the pivot to Asia that the Obama administration talked about, the Biden administration does seem to be taking, taking, moving more aggressively to, into that pivot. And it, there's sort of, to some extent, it is a zero-sum game because, you know, the U.S. owns only so much diplomatic bandwidth. And when there's more focusing on the Asia-Pacific region, there's inevitably less focusing on the European region. That said, I don't think we're ever going to get to a place, I should say ever, but I don't, I don't think in the, the next couple of decades, certainly, that we're going to get to a place where the U.S. government does not perceive Trump, Trump asterisks, by the way, Trump asterisks and all of this, does not perceive the major European powers as important to, if not have actively cheering us on and standing next to us to at least not have angry at us. And I, I do think, well, I, I absolutely refuse to talk about submarines and you can't tempt me to do it. But I do think that that was a little bit of a miscalculation. I think we screwed that one up. I think, I think, and I suspect that there was an immediate, oh, wow, we didn't handle that quite right. Because I don't think, we don't want the French to be actively mad at us. We don't necessarily care that much if they are, you know, aggressively boosting us, but we don't necessarily want them to be actively mad at us. I don't think that's going to change. What do you think, Corey? So I had a, a French security official tell me that the attitude he perceives in Paris now feels a lot like the depth of resentment the United States had toward France in 2003 when the Bush administration believed they had French support at the United Nations and were surprised not to. And I do think the problems that the Biden administration has caused would be bad in and of themselves. The lack of coordination on Afghanistan, 
the uh, surprising the French with the AUKUS deal. Those would be bad enough, even if they hadn't been crowing about America's back, we're working with our allies. But that sort of adds insult to injury. And the trip that the Biden White House team took to Europe in June with the simple message of declaring America is back without any substantive policy stuff going on in support of it seems to me a blunder you actually don't have to be an expert to have anticipated. So they better up their game and they better do it fast because European allies are justifiably frustrated. I personally wish that we would nominate France's fabulous defense minister, Florence Parly, to be the next NATO secretary general, because I think that would go some way to uh, reminding the French how much we value their, them as a major military power in the world and how much we trust their leadership on important issues of defense policy. Well, on the plus side, we do have a kick-ass U.S. ambassador to NATO now. And actually, I mean, not this is actually I was just trying to say a nice thing about Julie, who deserves many nice things said about her. But in all seriousness, I, I think she is she is, in fact, the perfect choice because she is someone who has a you know very deep respect and deep personal relationships with people throughout Europe, particularly in Germany, particularly in France. Uh, and I think that having her there will both give us a thoughtful set of eyes and ears coming from Brussels, but also will really will really help ensure that we do not screw up in quite this kind of way in the future, I hope. I hope that's right. And I agree with all of the compliments of wonderful Ambassador Smith. But again, you didn't have to be an expert to foresee the problems that the Biden administration has created for itself with true, Europeans, very true. which suggests to me that the White House and the seventh floor of the State Department just don't care not that they don't understand. Well, that's probably an overstatement, but sidestepping it for a second and adding to the compliments about Julie, she not only has all of these contacts across Europe, but she has a long, deep past contact with us here at Deep State Radio. And so that's important. But perhaps, as I was going to say, slightly more important than that, she did serve as a national security advisor to Vice President Biden. So she does have ties to the president that are not normally found in a ambassador to NATO. And that's also a, a big plus. Ed, do you want to defend the Biden foreign policy here? I know he won't, by the way, Corey, I'm just um, setting him up here. I would like to, um, not at the moment, no. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't, <laughs> I, there, are, there are lots of plus, there are plus points. Um, I just, there's a lot of blanks that need to be filled in. Um, and the, the, it sort of comes to a head for me with a foreign policy for the middle class. I really don't know what that means. Well, you're going to find out this week, Ed, because I will make a prediction that we'll see this week, the beginning of movement towards passing the infrastructure bill and passing the large reconciliation bill. That's got a very significant investment in social programs in the United States. And that is going to represent a shift of U.S. priorities in terms of spending towards investing in ourselves and our leadership for the future. Now, we can criticize that, but I, I actually think the big news item to watch this week, despite the fact 
there's plenty that could go wrong, is that this is actually going to move forward in some form. May not be a trillion dollars plus 3.5 trillion, but at some at, in the, the form that it ultimately moves forward in is going to be very significant. We will discuss that on some future episode of Deep State Radio, likely one not in the too distant future. Uh, for those of you who want to find out what we're doing, go to the DSRnetwork.com. And while you're there, if you click membership, you can help support what we're doing. And we'd be grateful for that. Uh, until then, please, uh, everybody out there in Deep State Radio land, join me in thanking Corey, thanking Rosa, thanking Ed. And we will see you all again real soon. Bye-bye.